0: Take a look at a dandelion under a microscope. You'll be amazed at what you see. And, you know, any blade of grass is a miracle.
1: From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Aaron Jones. In this episode, we'll hear about a journalist who went to live in a forest, and who met one tree in particular that helped her find the story she needed to tell. For Linda Mapes, life began in the woods. I grew up in a kingdom of trees, seven acres
0: of woods, maples, oaks, white pine, cedars. It was a magnificent, absolutely ordinary forest, the kind of thing every kid should wish for. There were little frog ponds. I would follow the sounds of the spring peepers as soon as I got off the bus, all the way deep into the woods. I learned to climb my first trees in that forest. I built a tree house in that forest. I slept out in that forest. I walked our dog in that forest. I practiced my violin in that forest. I grew up in that forest. It was heaven.
1: Linda grew up. She found a job that let her keep spending time in nature, she became a science journalist. And one of her field's biggest topics was climate change. Linda thought about the simplicity of her childhood among the trees. And she thought maybe those ordinary giants could help her tell the story of climate change in a new way. So she visited Harvard University's study forest in Western Massachusetts, and there she began researching a new book. I wanted to explore
0: a way to tell the climate change story Differently. I mean, I could tell as a journalist that people were just tuning out this story, you know, parts per billion. They didn't want to hear any more about that, and neither do I. And I wanted to try to discover
1: a way to tell this story through the charisma of the natural world. At the Harvard Forest, Linda met a scientist named John O'Keefe. John was studying climate change through the tree canopy. He made weekly walks with a notebook and pen on a circuit observing the ways leaves behaved to try to determine whether seasons were shifting as a result of climate change. We went out on his loop and we actually
0: auditioned trees. We came along and looked them over and thought, ah, this one's too small. This one is too obscure. There was a lovely little striped maple, which is a very pretty species in New England. It actually has a photosynthesizing bark and a beautiful leaf and it gets a great flower in the spring. But you know, it wasn't big enough. It wasn't old enough. So we passed that one by. And We walked on and we came to a black gum, which is the oldest tree in the Harvard forest. It's about 400 years old. But I thought, it's a little obscure. Not many people will know that species. So didn't pick that one. We kept on going on his loop. And uh, finally, he comes up to this big red oak. And he puts his hand on it and he says, here, I think this would be a good one for you. And I tipped my head back, all the way back, and I looked up and it had a giant crown about 65 feet across. It was big enough I had to, you know, really kind of crane my neck to take it all in. And I thought, perfect oak, the most common species in the northern hemisphere. If it was an animal, it would be a dog. It's a, it's a tree that had everything I was looking for. It has nobility, it has character, it has beauty. And this one was old enough to be my witness tree. In New England and elsewhere, during the time of white settlement, people used big trees to mark the boundaries of their changing world. They needed to set out the meets and bounds of landscapes. And very often, there wasn't anything handy with which to do that, other than a nice big tree. And these were called witness trees, witnesses to the boundary that was being marked. For myself, the use of the term witness tree for the title of my book is a metaphor. The tree that I selected and whose life I chronicle over its hundred years was not actually a witness tree because it's not old enough to be that. However, it, just like those, marks time. It marks change. It is the thing that has abided on the landscape through so much that has happened. After all, it sprouted just about the time when Model T's are coming off the assembly line as we walk away from the farms and go to work in the factories, and in the industries that ultimately are changing our world. And so my tree is a metaphorical witness tree in the sense that it, it is a way to look at our changing relationship with nature and changes in nature itself over the hundred years of its life.
1: Linda decided to spend more time with her new tree. She got permission to live at the Harvard Forest for a whole year.
0: Which gave me the time to come back to the forest, move into an old farmhouse not a half a mile from my tree. Take up residence and literally um, visit the tree every day, all kinds of weather. I went up there in my bedroom slippers, snowshoes, muck boots, work boots. I was out there uh, day, night, spring, winter, fall, summer. It was such an important gift to be able to look closely and long at nature and at this tree. And not only that, but to do so in the company of scientists from all over the world and from a whole range of disciplines.
1: The witness tree that you chose, the red oak, you said is a very ordinary tree. And I wonder, is there something important about understanding common nature as opposed to majestic nature?
0: I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> I have a thing about this because you know, this divorce from nature um, it happened in so many ways. It, it happened number one in thinking that uh, knowing about nature was only for professionals, scientists, people in white coats or something. Um, and And secondly, it happened with this idea that it's only for the adventure shows, you know, the um, the, the sort of distant, romantic, faraway, exotic, Got to get on a plane and fly there for tens of thousands of dollars. Nature, that's great, and um, I'm glad for people that do that. But I, I want very much for people to know the wonder of a dandelion. I mean, take a look at a dandelion under a microscope. You'll be amazed at what you see. And you know, any blade of grass is a miracle. And and to get to know the relationships between the animals and the plants in your backyard and. The weather itself, the the cycle of the day, the the sounds, the smells, the the, the wonder of it all. You know, it's. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up as a kid watching dragonflies land on my knee, and and I wish that not only for every kid but every adult to slow down enough to embed yourself wherever you are, and actually really see and enjoy and and celebrate The extraordinary that is the ordinary of our everyday.
1: Linda began holding what she called tree soirees. She introduced people to the oak tree one by one. And so I brought a forester who assessed it for the amount of bored feet.
0: How many homes could you build from the tree? I took a soil scientist to delve into the richness of the soil and explain the interconnected web of life underground, species to species. There's even a lot of communication going on below ground, by the way. I brought in an artist to the tree. I brought a poet... I brought uh, a dendrologist. These are the people who core trees and can see into the past by reading their tree rings. That was fascinating. We uh, took a microcore, which is thin enough to fit into a drinking straw, and looked at it under a microscope. And darn, if you couldn't see and reveal so many things about this tree's life by doing that, you could see that in 1984 there had been a big gypsy moth attack, tiny little ring that year, didn't grow very much, You could also see how year upon year this tree had been growing steadily, big and fat and fast. And in fact, that over the past 25 years, the rings were even bigger. This thing was bench pressing carbon. You know, climate change is real and nature shows us that. And the plants tell it, the frogs tell it, the migrating timing of birds tell it, CO2 acts as an insulating layer in our atmosphere so of course the more there is of it the warmer on average our global surface temperature will be and we see this reflected in the witness tree we see changes in the timing of the seasons spring on average is coming earlier fall is coming later winter is getting squeezed on both ends The planet is not just a collection of places. It is an interconnected physical, geochemical, biological system. We don't run it. We
1: just happen to be lucky enough to share it. Linda points out that humans have subjected the planet to other violences in the past. And folks despaired then, too. But Linda says there's room for optimism. Let's talk about
0: Henry David Thoreau. He was writing uh, at the time of the height of deforestation in New England. We think about him as pan with a pencil, you know, off in the beautiful woods. Forget it. That's not true. He, He was writing as they were cutting down the woods of New England in order to clear it for agriculture. And he would write in his journals, thank God they can't cut down the clouds. And he would lament the loss of the so-called nobler animals. And he meant the deer and the bear, the mountain lion. You know, in the time of his day, the biggest thing left in the woods was a muskrat. Nobody had even seen a deer in a generation. Well, fast forward to today, and over a six-state region of New England, we see one of the most glorious and profound rewildings of our time. As people walked away from these farms to go work in the cities, and do other kinds of jobs. Uh, what came back? The trees. And with them, the animals. Today, bear and moose are in such profoundly great numbers, it's actually kind of a problem for people <laughs> who in a modern in modern days have not lived so closely with so much wildlife. And I take so much encouragement from that, that nature is resilient, does rebound, comes back. You know, there's a lesson there that not only is all not lost, but you can have faith in nature that that force, that genius, that
1: brilliance is always there. So the year continued, and Linda walked to the tree over snow and dry ground, in morning and midday and deep night, coffee cup or notebook in hand, and she sat against it, or lay under it, and looked up.
0: The CO2 that we breathe is the food they need. The oxygen they make is the sustenance that we need. And visiting it at night, I would think to myself, you know, I'm lying here under the tree and uh, our breath is shared. It's it's not photosynthesizing right now, but it's still breathing through the lenticels of its bark. And, you know, to think about that and, and wonder if... You could see the breath of trees, some kind of golden cloud. Would we better understand how linked we are, how interdependent are our lives?
1: During her year in the Harvard forest, Linda learned all kinds of things from the scientists she interviewed, like John O'Keefe. But what stuck with her most wasn't a fact. It was a habit.
0: John and I were on one of his weekly walks. You know, he did this every week in spring and in fall and i was just watching him work you know with a pencil and a clipboard this simple action that any of us can do and it, and it just hit me you know the power of simple observation the power of rooting yourself in a place one spot making it your place and really knowing that place how it changes over time understanding it deeply you know we think about this in terms of marriages with beloveds we think about it in terms of family relationships It occurred to me that we have other families too. We have the families of our places on this earth. We have the opportunity to put our own roots down in our spots and live with them deeply.
1: Our storyteller was Linda Mapes. For more on climate change, trees, and the woods of New England, check out her book, Witness Tree, And you can discover more, like a link to the Witness Tree webcam, at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. Special thanks to KUOW in Seattle for helping to record this episode. This is the end of season two. We're getting ready for season three, and we think it'll be our best one yet. What happens when your helicopter crashes in remote winter mountains and the pilot didn't pack supplies? Or when you come across a deadly family secret And Woody Guthrie offers salvation. And when elephants are dying of thirst, how far would you go to bring them water? That's all in Season 3, starting in September. To tide you over until then, we're bringing you an episode from our friends at Last Best Stories. Listen for it on August 18th. I'm Erin Jones. The show is produced by me, Caroline Ballard, and Annie Osborne. Alana Elder is our production assistant. Our digital producer is Anna Rader, and our senior producer is Micah Schweitzer. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media.